0: Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for today's show and the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media. We produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of my colleagues at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and on Twitter, and we welcome any of our viewers to join in the conversation and send us in questions of your own. We'll be watching for those during the show and doing our best to have our guest respond. And my guest today, I'm very pleased to have Kendra Ketchum, who is the vice president for information management and technology at the University of Texas at San Antonio. When Kendra joined UTSA two years ago, she took on a newly created role that was designed to drive overall IT strategy and transformation, bringing with her more than 25 years of technology leadership experience in both higher ed and government organizations. At the university, Kendra oversees a technology environment that supports faculty, staff, and about 45,000 students. She and her hardworking IT staff of about 170 enable all of the applications and the infrastructure that is related to administrative IT, information security, and technical services. Before she joined UTSA, Kendra served as the Chief Technology Officer of IT Shared Services at the University of North Texas, and before that, had leadership and technology roles at Texas Wesleyan University, the University of Northwestern Ohio, and Bowling Green State. She's widely respected on the national level among her higher education peers, and currently serves on the leadership board for CIOs in higher ed. Earlier in her career, before she got into technology, Kendra served as a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman, providing clinical nursing services for internal medicine and surgery clinics at naval hospitals in North Carolina, Spain, and Texas. And she is a born and raised Texas native. Delightful to have you here today. Kendra, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic, Mary Fran, and thank you so much for the conversation today. It's an exciting time to talk about uh, technology and CIOs, especially during this pandemic and strange times that we're in. But thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, well, thank you for being available to us. Let's, we often dive in right at the beginning with the, the disruption and the disrupted reality that we're all living in right now. And so let's talk a little bit about the COVID crisis impact on the university and on the higher ed landscape. And when you and I were getting ready for this interview and I asked you about it earlier, the first thing, the first thought that came to you was talking about intentional leadership. So let's start there. Talk about- Absolutely. And how that plays into the necessity to have a more intentional leadership approach these days.
1: Yes, thank you, Mary Friend. So <clears throat> it's interesting because when this pandemic hit us, I think IT, um, our group especially, were, were positioned very nicely to be able to provide services in a way uh, to continue the academic enterprise. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we knew we had students that had, uh, you know, in classes had things to complete. Um, and this happened, if you notice, right in the middle of spring semester. Yes. And so our ability for literally about uh, four days in these in these uh you know war room style conversations trying to determine how we were going to pivot and do this and support both the business and the academic enterprise Um, interestingly enough i went to the to the committees and talked with all of the the leadership and i i said it's ready we can do this and we'll be the first ones to go support the academic enterprise remotely for the first week and then whenever we all have to leave. Campus will be prepared. And so I think that just got us some some experience and got our chops ready, if you will, um, to to support that enterprise. And the the intentional leadership was was this um, when this event happened and we you know started hearing how severe and intense it was, a lot of us had travel plans. Things just stopped. Yes. I will say at that moment, there this what I call a moment of, it, of impact, um, we decided we could either thrive or we could survive. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, the leadership that I work for They're very much thriving mindset. And so that ability for us to just all of us grab together and say, we're going to thrive and we're actually going to do more in spite of, you know, uh, the pandemic and and deliver more. And I think that goes to the intentional leadership, because as we started to leave, we now have disparate groups that are away from campus that still need to be led right? They still need to know they're part of the organization and they still need to know the importance of their role as they support the academic and business enterprises. Mm-hmm. So I think that intentional leadership pushed down to about three layers in my organization from directors to senior directors, uh, all the way down into to the managers to ensure that people are getting what they need. It goes back to that's who's delivering, right? That's who's delivering these services. And so to be an intentional leader is my role, is to set them up for success, mm-hmm. get them the tools they need and be intentional in that practice. That as we go through these unknown periods, mm-hmm. they at least see that we know that it may be ambiguous, but we're going to do this in a way that's leading them to the why of what we're at, whatever it is we're delivering. And and so I challenged a lot of my CIO colleagues in the summer. It was we all were budgets were tight. We had clawbacks, everything that, you know, we had to come together and and really do more with less because we were we were losing, you know, we had to give refunds for for housing and you know, all, all of the services across campus that were no longer being consumed. So we worked closely with all of the academic enterprises and 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 the business folks, and we came up with a solution that said. Listen, we'll support, and we may it may never have to come back to campus. Yeah, you and, and, and yeah. yeah. So it goes back to that intentional leadership of we have to be sure and certain as we lead and guide our teams, um, especially in uncertain times, mm-hmm. and they will follow whoever they that looks like they know what they're doing. And so that goes back to having weekly succinct messages and meetings. Uh, we were doing town halls every week. I had. Uh, Thursday, BYO, I think I told you that the B O D. We call them bring your own and instead of device, it was bring your own drink, whatever you want. We'll have them every Thursday, and and everybody can <clears to throat> meet and talk about what they're doing. Um, but it was those actions I think that made everyone like, oh, we're meeting more now. Yeah. We're actually, we're we leveled up in the organization. I T is more relevant now than we've ever been. Yes. So that was the exciting thing to see as far as you know, as when the pandemic hit.
0: Well and that's that's such a, a it's such a great time I think for well it's every time you say it's a great time now you want to apologize because it's it's such a terrible time for so many people but from an IT leadership standpoint it's kind of incredible the way projects have accelerated and resistance to change has has dropped significantly and i've had so many conversations with cios telling me about you know a rollout of some big video conferencing system that was maybe part of their office platform and they thought it was going to take them 10 months to get everyone on board and it took two weeks Um, that sort of thing and that goes back i think to that seat at the table which cios have had for a long time but knowing what to do with it, how to be strategic with it. Um, and I it, i mean, one of the examples I think you and I talked about is the way you're pushing forward on your cyber program, the bachelors that you offer in security and cybersecurity. You're number one in the nation and determined to stay there, right?
1: Right. Well, and you know, that's a good point because when you talk about cybersecurity and you look at the events of just things happening and more and more things uh, that are online and businesses that are online, I mean, even this past election, you see just the cyber events and things that are that are bubbling up to the top. And at any given time, you know, when you announce that, oh, we're the number one, this or we're the number one that, you know, you significantly increase um, your your ability for that, you know, for for cyber things to happen. So the good news is our organization has the National Security uh, Collaboration Center on our campus Mm -hmm. and um, working with General Guy Walsh, who's uh, running that program. And it is, you know, he's a former, he's a retired general who ran, uh, you know, all of this in the military. And so he understands the, the ecosystems and the threats. But what's exciting is that we're positioned in San Antonio now, where these federal partners are needing these cyber students to come in and do internships, to come in for jobs. So this goes more than just developing, you know, a degree program. It's really classroom to career for some of these students. And so I look at the opportunities. I, I remember when cyber was a big deal back 20 years ago, um, and we offered one of the first degrees at one of the universities. I, I was up north there. But, you know, it was not as as um, as holistic as this this type of program is with those federal partners. So I think the experience, the internships, stand, you know, setting up cybersecurity operation centers and actually working in them, those are skill sets that we can provide now because we have those things within IT.
0: Do you think we'll see, I remember many years ago in, uh, I would have conversations with CIOs who had started out in entirely different fields. They were math majors. Sometimes they were music majors, and they ended up doing internships or there were training programs in the big corporations that they joined. Are you seeing or anticipating a big resurgence of that—the ability to join a company and then get trained up and directed into?
1: I'm going to. I'm going to be. That's exactly what you're going to. I, I feel that the classroom to career component of that and getting in and getting the work done mm-hmm. that to me in the cyberspace that's the experience right and so nothing I mean you can you can learn it all day long in a book but actually going through and, and working it having uh, red team blue team having those cyber ops uh, things that they do those are all very critical things running a true cyber uh, a security operation center um, you know what does that entail and what types of events are we looking for but it really goes back to response right what what happens when it does happen and i think that's the biggest set of skills that we're going to give to students because when these things do happen, what is the playbook to get through it? And so I think that's the the learning component that we can as IT professionals working in this space, share and train up those students now that are going out and participating in these internships. So yes, I think it's very, it goes back to again, um, serving in those programs so that our students uh, do the best that they can when they leave here with all of the knowledge they have.
0: Well, and when you think of the kind of practical experience they'll have to put on those online resumes. Which yeah. Comes- yeah.
1: And yeah. right now it's just, be you know, you mentioned the pandemic, it's yeah. people are onboarding new employees. I mean, all of these things are happening in spite of this, this pandemic. Yeah. So it's all happening remotely. And so now I think it's a secondary set of skills that we're also providing because, you know, you're going to have to have those face-to-face skills as well, the soft skills, right? But what can we do technically uh, to speed up orchestrate or whatever, some of those response rates. And so that's where the fun becomes because that's problem solving, right? And that's where I think the students shine. And I think that's where you see um, innovation happen, right? Because it's not known. And what could we do to innovate there?
0: Yep. Well, and I've had so many stories over the years from CIOs who have gotten interns and students involved in some project and they come in with, I, what initially may sound as a completely off the wall way to look at it. I remember one, it was about a, a cyber security team, and they were worried about an attack by the, um, the cyber the cyber hackers anonymous. And they were having this big discussion around the room and they had a, like a 22 year old student there. And he said, well, why don't I join anonymous? And then I'd have kind of an insider view. And at first they were all shocked and like, Oh, that's, we're trying to fight these. Bi-. And then the, everybody stopped and said, Oh, that could be kind of amazing, you know. And yeah, it, it was. You that. think
1: of outside the box. I think
0: exactly, exactly. Now you mentioned earlier the that difference between just deciding to survive or to thrive. One, um, and that people in leadership really do want to thrive, but that means doing some risky things. Um, Give me some examples about how that is, you know, how that's happening in daily life for you and your IT team.
1: You bet. So, we, uh, you know, as as we started to create our strategic plan, we started about a year ago in developing that. So, when I said IT had a little bit of a level up and when the pandemic hit, we were prepared to walk into the next four years with a strategy, right? the strategy had to change, had to change, right? And and that's okay, we can do that, that strategic document is a a living document. So Mm -hmm. we all sat down as leaders, and we started working through the strategic plan. And we determined there were definite areas we could make significant impacts in. Yeah. And that means that Instead of putting those on the back burner, things like governance, things like, um, you know, strategic portfolio guides, actually looking at portfolios and services, tying all of that together in a true portfolio that's managed, those visions, so service management wasn't visioned. So we were pushing that out, and the the pandemic made us look and say, wait, we need to pull that forward. So we pulled that forward. We sat down, and then I took my strategic plan and shared it with Cabinet and said, We're not going to just create a year of what this is going to look like when we come out of the pandemic, because that's probably going to be pretty easy to do, but not really give me insight that's going to be valuable on how we could grow and be better. So what I said is let's create a four year plan. And in that four-year plan, we know that that year of ambiguity is the pandemic, and we're working through it, and we're delivering our services. And then the next three, four, orchestration, automation, all of those things start happening here and now, so that when we do come back to campus, we have freed up our operational cycle so much that we can start to innovate, because our time of doing those tedious daily tasks is over, right? We're not doing that anymore. No. So that's where I think the risk came in. And, and I'll give you an example of tech, two of them. Uh, our tech cafe, mm-hmm. uh, we went forward. Uh, there was no service. and There were actually like five service desks across campus, not including the, the 27 plus distributed uh, IT areas in the 63 different uh, distributed IT areas. So distributed IT exists in higher ed. That's just how it is. Sure. Um, so, so seeing how we could come in with service management and actually have one tool to serve all of these desks and have one set of ITIL uh, practices and one set of ITIL uh, ex- explanations of how things operate in an IT shop and then lend them our tool. And so I, to do that, I had to come up with a clever way of funding it. So in the middle of the pandemic, back in July, budgets yeah. were cut by 10 percent across yeah. our entire org. Mm-hmm. So I. I didn't have to go far. People started knocking on my door because they were, we need to get out of the IT business. Can you help us? So we started onboarding into our ServiceNow platform, all of these distributed areas to help them and give them tools to run an IT operation. That alone allowed and freed up any renewals, any cost associated. So so we were able to grab some of those dollars as savings and push it up towards the enterprise tool. So that's one, and it was a risk because, I went forward with a cost ratio showing my my cabinet and president that if we have 60% adoption by year two,
0: mm-hmm. I'll
1: have a good ROI on this decision. Our return on this investment will be very positive and lucrative. By That, that means we're running business, our cycles are good, and now we're innovating with that spare time. Yeah. By the end of our implementation, we're at 90% adoption. And so that two-year window that was a risk out of ROI has just come up to our face, and like, wow, we're mm-hmm. going to see some immediate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ROI on this, and that's exciting uh, because it was a risk to take when when service management's pretty service is a pretty big spend, right? Yeah. Um, but but I had to show that if we are t- intentional and in spend there, that the the outcome of that will be worth it,
0: mm-hmm. right? Well, <clears throat> and you had also mentioned that um, your your IT team, which is, as we said, about 170, taking care of a campus with, what, 50, 55,000 people on it, that you were actually scattered all over in eight different buildings. And Yes,
1: we were taking a prime academic space that, honestly, IT didn't need to be in. You gave it back then. We gave it all back. And so what I did is we created a, uh, we had a strategic planning cycle in July and I said, okay, teams, and this is, you have to remember, we've got the app team, I've got PSYOPs, I've got, you know, I've got the career fuel folks that are running, you know, trying to do the internships. And so these groups all are, are within IT. And so we all sat down and said, if, if we do this and we do this well, um, it, there's a, it's a no-brainer as far as a decision and, and supporting our academic enterprise. We'll be able to do it from home. We're doing it now, and we're excelling at it. Yeah. Um, the proof is usually in the pudding, right? And that goes back to a lot of times there's this switch I see in IT folks that some support the telecommuting profile, some don't, right? Depends on who, what side of the fence you're on. Um, you're going to know when people aren't doing their work. Right. As a leader in an organization, we're going to know when the stuff's not happening, when we're not executing, we're going to know why. Presence doesn't really make that any different. Right. Being present there and all of us in this one room together, we can do this remotely. And so that's the big change, I think, is that getting us together in these meetings and remotely pulling these people together and saying, okay, so now give those rooms back show us how we can support in the next four years in our strategic plan, having one hotel area mm-hmm. on campus, and we bring our folks in that might be running an app project with a particular on-campus team, yep. and we'll cycle them through. But this also saved all of our our our, our uh, workers in cost as well, because we have to pay for things like parking. Mm-hmm. We have to pay for, you know, all of those things that would come As a as not a benefit. So it was kind of a benefit to go back and say to our our staff, hey, guys, you don't have to pay this for parking anymore. You don't have to. When you come on campus, you'll have this card and you'll be able to use it. And and we'll do that. But so right now it's working and I'm excited to see. And that was a risk. The telecommuting option was a risk saying we're going to continue to do this. There will be I'll be on campus back when, you know, as soon as the the pandemic, as soon as I can get an immunization. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so when we start going back, there'll be only a small group of us. And yeah. everyone else is going to continue to remote.
0: Well, and I think in many ways, I think what you're describing is going to be the evolving future of work at, not just at universities or organizations like yours, but at so many different companies. I mean, there's a genuine rethinking going on about yeah. the steps forward. And But very related to that, since we're, we're always talking about leadership, we have our first question from our alert audience. What have been some of your primary guiding principles as a CIO to remain in connection and alignment with the senior leadership team while continuing to foster this culture of digital transformation within, and I guess you're not the IT department anymore. That was one of your things you renamed it. It is university technology solutions. Correct.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so when I joined the organization, they were called OIT and essentially they were considered a a commodity. It was a light switch when it was, everything was working, everything's great, but no services outlined, things like that. Right. So people consumed him. It was, ticket takers. That's all they were doing was taking tickets and putting out fires. Yeah. So yes, when we started to become more strategic and we started showing up and going into cabinet and I started sharing our plans. So when you said to keep the, the communication synchronous, yeah, I think it's important that whatever I'm sharing in my leadership teams, I'm bubbling up the same message. And so it goes back to being able to manage up and laterally. And so when I would meet with them, I would share with them some of the things that are strategies that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I also would meet, I, I went on a listening tour when I first got here. That listening tour included all of the leadership that you know is across the organization, deans, provost, VPs. And I, I listened to where IT needed to be yeah. and where they weren't right and so that helped me understand from a disconnect and and then I will say the that I got a little lucky because a lot of leadership joined about the same time I did and so you know Veronica Mendez the CFO and senior vice president for business affairs her and I started about the same week Mm -hmm. so to work can come in at the same time with the CFO we would and we were staying at the same um the same offsite location for the first month or so. It was interesting. I would, we would look at each other and kind of be like, oh, you, you, you've you got this and I've got this. Huh. And we would start to see these uh, these red hair, you know, these things coming up in the org that, oh, that's why that's there, you know. And we started just tackling them. And so I will say the organization, if you were to look at our HR, our, our business affairs, all of those areas have just leveled up because of the leadership that was brought in. So that is also what's helped me. Right. Because coming in with that group and being at a table of of respected leaders that listen to what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not walking in there with a bunch of tactics, they listen, you know. And so I think it's it's important uh, in that messaging that, you know, oftentimes CIOs can lose their seat at the table if they just go in with a bunch of tactics and ops on how to fix something and so sometimes CIOs can do that right we can we can get real technical very quickly and want to solve a problem and solutionize it and and do that but but i think the value needs for us to stay in that 30,000 foot purview and dive
0: down when it's necessary yeah well and i i think that that deep in the heart of most CIOs is that that genuine desire to solve problems i yeah. mean you come from engineering and more technical backgrounds yep. and you want to, all right, assess what's the problem and how do we fix this and how do you and it's very hard to be thinking strategically when you're concentrating on tactics. Yes.
1: And it goes back to the business, right? The alignment, that alignment. Um, so meeting with uh, the VPs of, of you know, th- our strategic enrollment group, that was imperative. I mean, I went into that meeting and said, listen, this relationship is going to, our teams are going to deliver amazing products if this relationship is great. If they see that we're all collaborating and we're working together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Mary Fran, that also goes back to my leadership ethos, which is it's it's bigger than me. You know, it's not about me. It's bigger than me, uh, and and I think that that's important to mention because as a servant leader, sometimes it can be confused with um, with niceness, right, and kindness, and, and those things. That, oh, you know, it, and kindness can be also viewed as as weakness, right? Well, we have to position ourselves to deliver solutions, but the business needs to be delivering them. We yeah. need to enable them with our skills to be able to deliver that. And where people forget is we want to solve it and hand it off. And what I tried to tell a group, I had this group once, and they, we made three one-offs. And I'm like, yeah, but at the first one-off, it's no longer value. Mm -hmm. If they're having to do all of these one-offs to use something, you didn't build it for its use case, which is utility plus warranty equals value, right? So it was interesting as we worked through that. But yeah, we've got to think of those things as we start to deliver. So we spent a year in my in this new org I was in only working on leadership. Like I'll tell you, it, I came in, it was not ever, we had great technical folks. Yes. None of them were communicating to each other. None of them were communicating to the other teams. So the the implicit actions that they might've been doing had consequences further down the road. But because they weren't thinking strategically, all they were seeing was what was right in front of them. So I think lifting them up, and I mean, we had to go through design thinking courses. I put all of my senior engineers through design thinking classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, My CTO has gone through design thinking. He actually went to an MIT class. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to design solutions. You've got to put the empathy back into it. And I think that that was missing. When you're just a ticket taker you know, and it's broken, you walk over and you replace a keyboard and then you leave, right? Yeah, it's sexy about that, right?
0: (laughs) Tricky part about servant leadership, because people can be, uh, especially on the business, from the business colleagues, they may be concentrating too much on the servant part and not realizing that it's actually a whole different concept. Now, you mentioned that, I know, is one of your core philosophies about the warranty, value plus what value equals? Utility
1: plus warranty, it's ITIL, utility plus warranty equals value.
0: Okay, explain a little bit more about that. I may be the only one listening that that was a new equation to me, but what do you mean?
1: Well, I I always tell it in the way that our teams deliver a solution. So let's say somebody wants a mobile app and we design the mobile app. And Mm -hmm. the mobile app has two workarounds because we didn't get something completely fully baked, right? So utility is its use case. You're building it for what it's used for. Warranty is you're using it for what it was built for. (laughs) <laughs> right Okay. yeah well we've just built two workarounds you're not using it for what it was built for and now the utility and warranty aren't there so how are you driving value by making them do two workarounds okay
0: does
1: that makes sense it um, does yeah, yeah yeah and so I always it's funny when we solve problems and that's another reason we changed our name university technology solutions mm-hmm. when we said we're solution providers I, I pulled all the teams when they started doing the design thinking I said okay now I made them go through a prototype. They had to do a prototype exercise of delivering whatever widget they created as far as a prototype and go through all of the aspects of what that looks like. So they would do that and they would start to see, oh, the business case for this needs it to be used this way, not the way that I was going to build it. And that's where the sweet spot comes in, right? That's where the connection happens. And usually out of that is where Good solutions happen, uh, innovations that change, uh, you know, the world or change, you know, the, the process of what you're doing
0: it's it's seeing a common problem from a completely uncommon solution standpoint um and i just want to take a pause and say if you're just joining us now i'm uh, this incredibly lively and informative conversation is with kendra ketchum who is the vice president of information technology at uh the university of texas at san antonio functionally the CIO, but we're dealing with higher ed. So there are fancier titles with more words in them. It's great to have you here with us. And please, if you have any questions for Kendra, uh, do put them in. And speaking of which, I have another one now, can you please provide your thoughts on data strategy as it relates to integration of data across applications and systems and a case in point, a 360 degree view on an existing or prospective student? yes, know? this this is okay. So
1: this is where I really can nerd out on you and get into the details. So you're going to help keep me at that thirty thousand view, right, Mary friend. but but honestly, this goes back to um, delivering data science, right? and and solutions that perhaps um, take data, utilize it, to come up with the best scenario or best answer. And what I found was interesting. I was at the University of North Texas and they had no data warehousing platform. They had probably five failed or four failed data warehouses that had come in prior. And when I got there, I got handed this huge, um, you know, SaaS project and and said, here, this is a project. And so immediately I was like, time out. This, This is a program. We are creating a data science program. And in this program, yeah. there will be many projects of us getting the data and getting these integrations done. We're predictive, anal- and so even to get this done, we did a data science model. And I used a decision tree. And that is this, that decision tree demonstrated value if you decided to do this project with probability and science behind it. Because okay. I was talking to all the data sciences and i was actually relaying that message to the the leaders there was a disconnect right and so i had to take it and narrate it in a way where they could understand it so we made it into a decision tree and by doing that they could see immediate value if they decided on this and what the probability of that was mm-hmm. that was one a uh, tool that i used to to roll that out and then the second thing i'll mention is that in the sciences space, when you're talking about data science, the relevance of data management is critical. Um, We started seeing immediately uh, data, you know, dictionaries that didn't line up uh, across the organization. We had to create a governance model around this entire program there to govern the data as it came in to ensure that what I was using as a student definition, enrollment or someone else had that same definition. And so it, it, took about a year for us to get in in that space, the data sciences uh, piece set, and the dictionaries all laid out. But what came with that were the amazing models that we were able to put in action to predict what would happen if students didn't come next semester or if they came and we just got them from these zip codes and not these. We were able to immediately slice and dice in real time what that would look like using that SAS product we brought up there. So I get to to UTSA here and there's no data warehouse. They have a couple of different pieces and they're using some other things. So the exciting pieces is their folks are using, um, you know, some of the Microsoft tools to deliver that. But we brought in Civitas and we want to get to predictive analytics. This is the last part of that question there about predictive analytics actually helping a student when we can get the predictive analytics into the palm of their hand. And we can have a professor know that this student looks like it might be he might be struggling a little more than the other students based on behaviors that are captured in that analytic profile. We can then send out target communications to the students. How can we help you? What can we do to help you, uh, you know, in, in this? Are you struggling? But it goes back to you've got to tie integrations. And, and sometimes people get really technical and want to dive into the technical portion portion of it. Mm-hmm. But you really got to tie the business use case of the data back to the problem you're trying to solve. And and if you can create it, I promise you people will come and they will can consume it. But uh, again, um, it, predictive analytics, I think will be, that's going to help students. It's going to help, uh, even in my, pl- I look back at my planning when I was planning my degree, cause you know, I finished my, my education later in life. And if someone had just told me, Hey, you got to take these three things versus this, or, you know, at a certain different time, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, spent so much more time in those other areas, right? I wouldn't have honed in on those other areas as much. I would have focused on what I needed to. And I think that's where predicting how our students can can also uh, perform and excel when they when they leave our programs is important. But you've got to have data science to do it. And so our, we are actually standing up a new school of data science, and we're breaking ground. And that's going to be our downtown campus with the National Security Collaboration Center. And th- I went forward to leadership and I said, listen, if we're going to, if we're going to to be uh, recruiting the best of the best in faculty, in data science, we've got to have our program, meaning we've got to have an operation in this. So we're actually working now with both the business and academic enterprises on a data warehousing solution to, to come up with to so that we can have the practice as well.
0: Yeah that's that's great now we may have already partly answered we have another question um and this is about how important it is for your organization to be able to communicate the value of what the teams are delivering when you're speaking to or or working with their customers not just your leadership team but up and down the stack how and this is all about breaking out of an order taker role. and i know we've touched on that a bit now but i i was thinking that you've got a, a great example with that with the data science center and probably many others. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you, um, in working together, we we started immediately showing up. And, and anytime people, when you're new into an organization, you have to remember there's this culture there um, that you were not at those tables before. So so you've got to push, right? I call it pushing a rope, right? We're pushing this rope up. And I so I'm just showing up and I'm like, hey, can we do this? And I'll, I'll be in this meeting with you. Just doing that and knowing. So advocating for our teams was important right? I had to show up. I had to advocate for what they could do. And then I had to advocate for what we couldn't do, right? Because there are things we shouldn't be delivering on. And and that goes back to us saying yes to everything. And we were delivering at about 20% versus saying yes to about 50 things. And then, you know, we can deliver at 100%. And so I think that concept, as we started working through uh, what our organization was going to look like, was important. I also had to ensure that it gets pushed down. I can't just be out here to my peers talking about it. Right. Our senior directors then go down our managers. These folks are the connective tissue to those distributed service desks. So ensuring that they had a different message, because remember, they had these same relationships. Mm-hmm. Some of them bad, right? They don't, I, We don't trust IT to handle our stuff. Right. So now they're going to the table saying, well, we have a new leader. We're trying to do this. We're learning this. We've gone through this we had to get them all through the training of about a year of that so that we could get the credibility for them to start handing off stuff to us. And that was the exciting point is being that advocate for the services and also demonstrating. I I remember I was in a cabinet meeting once and I was like, listen, I want to get you out of the marketing business, or I mean, out of the IT business and get me out of the marketing business. Because I was running a marketing division within IT. And I thought, but this is no different than, you trying to run IT, so let's flip it and, and, and work together. And so just that that mindset of, you know, I, I know what we're really good at and I know what really what we're not good at. And we have to be able as leaders to to shine a light on our capabilities because our capabilities are what aligns to the programs, to the to the projects, to supporting them mm-hmm. and and delivering. So well, it goes back to knowing our capabilities.
0: Well, and I remember when we were first talking about this too, you mentioned that when you arrived uh, two years ago, there was um there was a hesitation to say no to anything. And I know so many I can remember this conversation from years ago with CIOs basically saying we don't want to be the department of no. But that can end up with the department of yes to everything and then as you say, everything only gets twenty percent done.
1: Yeah. It was interesting, um, because I I had gotten I came into an organ I had hand delivered to me, not very often do you get this when your career, but I had hand delivered to me in a very expensive report that a year prior to my arrival, they had contracted with Huron to provide. So this report got handed to me and I was like, wow, (laughs) 138 pages of things I can move the needle on. Right. So I felt very fortunate, but I get this report and we started looking at it and I dove in and, and they recommended that we put governance last. It was considered a, you know, it's a high execution, high value, you know, but, but put it last. Oh. Yeah, and so i risk, risked, and let's talk about taking another risk. I went against what Huron said and actually moved governance up to the first quarter, delivered on creating a governance platform. Then the remaining 255 backlog of IT stuff got governed. So we realized we only needed to do about 10% of it. And that was the sweet spot because I when I when I got here I was like, what's your backlog look like? I don't know. We have about two hundred fifty five. What? Yeah. <laughs> How much of that is value? Like,
0: yeah.
1: are you just like going through this list and does it even drive value anymore? That's right. Um, and so we met with all of those, and so we took that list and just squashed it. And and that to me was a good day because I watched all of the leaders at the table that were from those other areas, admission, you know, admissions and 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 apps and all of these folks go oh, wow, we don't have to do that now. We could, right. so, and getting our app world, I mean, we were behind 14, probably 12 to 14 years in just our student information system app being upgraded, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, and you have that. Uh, I think that's on your to do list for the yeah, year. We're finished. We're finishing it
1: off December thirty first. Really? Okay. Yeah, we'll be at Banner Nine, and so I'm excited about that because you know they had three or four different ecosystems they had to work out of. None of them talking to each. I mean, my first three months here, they had eleven outages. <laughs> I had six phone calls with the president within my first three months here of outages. I mean, during registration, students couldn't even register. Mm. Right?
0: Not good. Yes. But
1: none of that's happened in the last year since we've gotten better at our our operational model. We've gotten better at our change management. We've gotten better at our service management. And I think those areas all lend to um, really
0: welding your chops of delivering IT, right? That's the all the and I know that this is a big theme throughout your career of delivering the this IT as as you would a business. Yeah, that's
1: yep. exactly what we are. I, I remember the day that some of our our directors, uh, you know, were talked to and our tech cap faced it up. This goes back to the to taking a risk, right? Mm-hmm. I, I then said, well, why don't we franchise this? You all, most of the CIOs out there, remember there was this federated, there still is a federated model of doing things, right? Well, but, yeah. but that has a, a bad taste when people think of shared services as a bad thing. So how do you get their mindset out of it? Well, the same way you get out of governance. Uh, our VP call, our executive um, senior vice president calls it our Strategic Investment Advisory Council. nice. I, it doesn't sound governance does it? <laughs>
0: it sounds pretty and strategic and in,
1: you're investing, and right?
0: And And, you know, it just, yeah. well, you don't have to sell that idea to an, a, a lifetime journalist and editor that language is so important. It is. I mean, it that's is. why I love it when I hear that a CIO has changed the name to, you know, technology delivery solutions or something. Yeah become like the just IT.
1: Um. Right. And, you know, when I did that, it was funny. I went in and I had to present it to cabinet and I thought it was a bigger deal. Right. I mean, you're talking of it's the brand, right? It's the name of IT. There's they've got shirts. They had I always told them to I joked around. I was like, you guys had stickers made for your helmets because y'all were such good firefighters, <laughs> you know, and every fire they were putting out, we were putting stickers on. So it, it we joked about it. And then I look and I think, wow, you know, that team Nothing's changed. These are the same people delivering these new things. The only thing we did is we invested in them. We invested in their learning. We invested in how they can present to the, to the organization. And, and then we provided them leadership.
0: Yeah, well, and I wanted to circle back just to make sure that we had talked enough about the Tech Cafe because sure. that essentially, you, you called that a franchise and about how much it's taken off. How is, I mean, essentially, and when you go on the uh, UT site and you, you can click right away into it and it says, how can we help? And yeah, that, so we rolled out
1: service now. we are fully live and we're one of the first organizations in higher ed to also roll out HR and as the case management module as well. And so we're taking on, we're, we're cooking inside of that that ecosystem, if you will. Right. Um, and so for us to be able to correlate data and share information and all of those things, even IT playbooks, right? It, IT is IT. Yeah. We had some audit findings that showed even the distributed units, they might be running IT, but they're not doing server updates. They're not doing the things that IT technologists typically do. Right. So in providing those services, as we said, we'll take that on for you. You know, you're doing a heavy lift now. We'll take that on for you. And as we started to gain credibility, people are now like, hey, take mine, take mine. And so this is so we're right now creating an MOU opportunity with our library and with our school of business to stand up two tech cafes, one at the school of business and one at the library and essentially franchise the model. Grab those workers that were on those payrolls, put them all together. Now you can move those workers around to provide service and you actually have a more developed workforce um, than just the siloed groups. So that's kind of what our intention is as we grow this. And I'm excited. I want to see Tech Cafe take off. Um, The students love it. They come in. We've got a big area. There were these big, prior to the pandemic, there were these big chairs. They come in and they could get whatever help student, faculty, or staff. And we have a window, Paseo, they call it the Paseo, Mm -hmm. right on the Paseo. And it was beautiful. It's like a storefront, almost like a little Mac store, glass storefront.
0: It was right across from a Starbucks.
1: Yeah, it's just directly across from a Starbucks. And so now we're going to expand on
0: that. Mm -hmm. Student work. Blue shirts and staff in orange.
1: Yeah, staff in orange. That that helps our people know you can walk by anytime and get help. Now, here's what's cool about Tech Cafe. We're still doing it remotely. I w- We've got orange team and blue team and they're handling calls and they're doing this remotely.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And they will keep doing it probably remotely and once maybe next year when everybody's had their vaccination. Uh, Hopefully and by fall we can all be, you know, that group because I do feel it's
1: important for that Tech Cafe group to be on campus. If we've got our students on campus, they should be there because that's when I think students need that last mile support, right? They're right there. And yeah. so um, that that group will definitely be one that will be uh, back on campus when we are. It
0: will be, it'll be such a wonderful novelty to be able to see someone in person, right.
1: Yes, I, I can't wait. <laughs> I know that for a fact.
0: wearing a mask with. Happy right. um, we have another question and this one is, it's related to something we were talking about a minute ago, but it's about a, kind of a general question about how you address data ethics. And oh, absolutely, the ethics around, especially when you start talking about predictive analysis. You know, there are different the data data models can end up being as biased and unreasonable as some people in the world can be. So, do you have any particular approach that that you have found works well for you over time?
1: I think uh, when you start looking at the sciences and you leave out. Um, any concept of ethics, that it is a critical moment of impact for your organization, Mm -hmm. because you are building something that has far reaching uh, capabilities. And so I think it goes back to ensuring as they're building solutions, and we're delivering on these things that we're thinking uh, anything that we can to solve this problem in a systematic approach, Mm -hmm. and to leave out that objectivity of whatever viewpoint I might have towards this data set. And so that can become hard, especially when you get into the application developer folks, right? Because that's the, I mean, they're doing it on the line. So the way I try to do that is I pull back and pull apart the components of our visualization of this, what we're trying to get, what, what is, what is that we're trying to get to? Mm -hmm. And then I immediately remove the what, and I, Replace it with the why. And that one little bitty step right there helps people think, okay, the why we're doing this, now they lay out anything ethical towards that data that might be, for example, we're we're in the middle right now of doing a data sharing agreement with the city of San Antonio. We have some real capabilities that we could be doing in in the guise of research with the city in their smart digitization project. The digital divide here in San Antonio is real. Right. We, ha- we could help. We could help that divide by providing technology solutions to people who've never even had Internet at their home. And so we were on a call with the city. And I think at that point in time, you could realize that everybody has de- different data definitions and different outcomes of why they want to do it. But we've got to get to one why. And let that all drive all of us. And, and so we did that in the meeting and just by talking through the problem and realizing that, okay, as a technology company, uh, UTSA, we're, we, we're not going to deliver Wi-Fi to that area. But what we could do is create the data sharing agreement that allows us all to share the data together, yes. and create a dark fiber ring that we all share it all on. And now you've got the city talking to the VIA, talking to the UTSA, and you've got all of this, but you've got to govern the data. And it goes back to data management. Forget the, uh, you know, the the ethics come into that as far as the, as the management process happens, but data management practice has to be uh, first and foremost in the governance uh, space. Because yeah. if not, you're going to have many, many wild, wild wests I guess overnight.
0: <laughs> and what better place to have it than in Texas, right? Right. <laughs> I guess there's a real I see we see a lot of
1: that already. I'll never forget I was working up in Fort Worth and I actually had a, a guy we were talking with with the city and you know, talk about internet in the form of barrels. Can I just get another barrel of internet, you know? No. <laughs> this is not oil. We don't do it that way. But yeah, you're right, you know, we have to we have to be succinct in why to the why, not to the what. To the why.
0: Do you use that five whys method? I do. Yeah. That's... Usually by the
1: fifth why, like why you're do that, you do that, right? real. You find out really what it means. Why are you doing this? Oh, you just trying to do that? Well, you, we just created this huge abominable snowman for this one little bitty thing, right? This one little bitty problem. So what we should have done, you exert 600 pounds of effort and you're not getting that that fruit, why are we exerting that? That yeah. goes back to governing our work. Yeah. A lot of folks said, well, we're busy. And I was like, well, what does busy look like? I didn't have any idea. They didn't have ticketing systems. What does busy look like? Yeah. But it goes back to now that we're governing our portfolio, I know that mm-hmm. we're executing on the right work at the right time. Yeah. That's the important piece.
0: Well, and I have actually, I've been kind of a, uh, a Soto Voce fan of it governance for a long time because but it's one of those things i remember when i was uh, editor-in-chief at cio magazine and we would propose doing a you know we'd have an idea let's do a cover story on it governance and everybody around the table would just groan and think oh we're going to be writing about those itil libraries and things but it was actually it's really governance is so much more about deciding it's so political for one thing, and it's deciding how the money's going to get spent and what the real priorities are. And yeah,
1: well, and it goes back to aligning. Yeah. Why am I delivering solutions that does not provide the business value?
0: That's a very good question. How do you answer a question like that? You can't,
1: I say, I roll out governance to ensure what I'm rolling out. Yeah. They wanted it. didn't want.
0: Yeah. Do you have because- you have a bigger fan club now around the idea of governance.
1: I do because we stripped away the name of governance. We're calling them strategic advisory councils. We've got a technology and in, in investment group, you know, and we've got a technology advisory group, tag. And all of these people get together and talk about the impact of this technology. And then the top group actually makes the decision. But one thing I will say is I had to implement a BRM program. The business relationship manager role did not exist at UTSA. So when I got here, I immediately immediately looked and what I was looking for were two things. I knew my business. Right. We know we know our business. We know we've got academics and we've got, uh, you know, business, the business that's running the academic empire. Mm-hmm. So we have to say, OK, these two groups, we have to be able to serve these two groups. And I started immediately looking who knew those two groups the best. And I found that I had a young lady running our service desk. She knew the entire enterprise and had been running it forever. I grabbed, gobbled her up and got her into BRM training. And then I saw that we had a gentleman that was running the library and he had the faculty side of the house and he knew that. So I lopped him up and grabbed him as well. And I said, we're going to paint you, y'all are BRMs. We're creating a strategic services division and business relationship managers are going to meet with our constituents to find out what business value we can drive by what technology tools we provide them. Mm -hmm. And we actually found in doing that, we found there were duplicate softwares. We got enterprise things collapsed into one. Mm -hmm. People were managing VMware license across the organization. I flattened all of that into one. So those go back to gaining economies of scale. And that, I think, was missing because everybody was doing their own thing, right? And so that is where I felt uh, some of my leadership coming from. UNT system that was ran like a business, right? And now I'm on a campus trying to to do this. So I think that that experience I had there was for a reason, as I came here to
0: apply it. Well, and also you didn't—they didn't have to start with a whole tedious relationship-building exercise. They knew and they knew who all the players, and I didn't. (laughs) Yes. connected that is that is so incredibly important it's just a friend of mine years ago said it is your network that will ultimately save you and i you know that i'm certainly a big believer in that myself and you just see it repeating over and over
1: well yeah and so meeting with these folks and meeting with the deans and the vps it's you know i'm going in and i'm I'm humbly assisting what can we do to, to to serve you uh exceptionally right i actually remember one day we were talking about um coming out of this pandemic. And I was like, we're going to thrive. We're going to thrive. We're going to, I want other organizations looking to us saying, wow, in spite of the pandemic, look what they did. And I think the reason why I felt that was that that's where the sweet spot is. And that's really where the story is, because it would be really easy just to plop my head in the sand mm-hmm. and let this off, just get past us and then pull my head back up out of the sand and go, okay, what do we have to do? Yeah. I don't, I'm not that kind of person and I would never be able to do that because obviously as leaders, we can intentionally make it better. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to why I I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm, I've chose to, to do this and I love it.
0: Well, and you made a wonderful point when we were talking earlier, where you said right now is not our future. No, it's not like we have to look out. That was whenever I hear people calling our current circumstances in the world, the new normal, I just shudder. I don't want it to be the new normal. I want it to be, you know, the, the interregnum, you know, yeah, we get it, to- will, it will be the
1: stepping stone to the next great thing. And that's where I keep saying is that we're on a stone and we've got several more stones to step on. And then we're going to, what, what happens on the other side of that? Well, I can tell you most leaders that I've talked to in my life, have never set out to be a leader, right? They never set out, I want to be a vice president. That's not what they, yes, they sure. set out to make it better. And that to me is kind of my ethos is I want to see it better than, leave it better than what, what we founded and make a true impact. I, I still think that the digital divide and providing services just to, you know, our students right now, they're, across uh, we're a primarily hispanic serving institution and when they don't have capabilities of simple internet connectivity Mm -hmm. they can't do their homework and that even goes to high schools right and so how can we and i want us to think innovatively how can we leverage some of our technology and our dark fiber to help these these learning units that are delivering uh, remote learning to students right now to their homes and them not have to go sit in a parking lot somewhere just to get on the internet
0: or a garage that has. Yeah,
1: wi- we did. We set up Wi-Fi in our garages to try to help students out. But, you know, it goes back to the digital. When I say the digital divide is real, it is. And and some folks don't even have those capabilities. Giving them the ability to even dial out from their home. We, we're handing out Wi-Fi hotspots. I mean, some of them are in rural areas here in Texas. Those yeah. Wi-Fi hotspots aren't going to help them anything, you know. So we've got to think outside the box and getting access to the Internet. That should be a no-brainer.
0: <laughs> it should yes. Well, and it's good. And actually, I think you've just mostly answered. We had another question about you. What is the vision of the university, and how does that align with your role? And I think we've we've hit. Uh, at that uh, as an answer from several different directions, but is there anything in that question that we haven't touched on yet? Because as you said, it's a primarily Hispanic serving university and a lot of people probably listening to aren't, won't realize that San Antonio is the seventh largest city city in the United States. Not in Texas, but in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and so that, that was actually a shocker to me because I came down from DFW and I was like, what?
0: Nope. And
1: it's true. Um, it's It is a large city. And what I'm excited about is UTSA is sitting in that heartbeat of the city, right? We've got our downtown campus. We have our our ability for uh, us. I, and my my president used this term once. He talked about the metabolism of the city, right? And how UTSA can lend to the metabolism of the city when we build out these new, for example, our new National School uh, uh, of Data Science and our NSCC when we build those downtown, I started immediately looking, how can we leverage technology so that the student experience as they walk from one end of the downtown area to the other, was uninterrupted from, from you know, them, their learning experience. And so that alone was, uh, is going to be the next good thing. Because I can see us in the next probably year when we start breaking ground there, we're going to have to find solutions to keep them continuously connected and then make that an experience for them, right? What does that mean? I'm leaving this campus and I'm walking now this direction. Do I stay on your network? Can I still, maybe I could, um, you know, Get some food along the way uh, and and do some of that stuff online and, and with my mobile app. And so those are things I want us to start thinking of is what next things can we
0: start? Yeah, with. well, that's a great idea. And actually, I think in this place very well, we are almost at the top of our hour, which I'm wow, not- that went fast. <laughs> I feel like we could talk for another hour, but yeah. my studio is very busy with, uh, with other work as well. But we do have one kind of a final question about whether you, and I think a lot of uh, certain. A lot of parents, a lot of people who have college-age kids, think about this. Do you foresee us transitioning to a 100% online educational model for higher ed in the near future, or maybe in even in the fire? Do you think it's going to be a mix? What is your? I I think there's,
1: I think there will be a hybrid model continued, um, and and similar to what the hybrid model has been in the past. There are laboratory, there are hands-on things that that remote environment does not give you. And typically it's in the sciences space. And so, no, I don't see that ever going 100% remotely um, because you need to be, uh, the animals are here. You need to be able to come here and do your testing. You need to be able to be on in this lab environment. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean we have labs and we have some created shared spaces and hoteling? I'm not sure what that landscape looks like, but if we outfit every one of our classrooms with the capability of remote or in-person
0: Yes. It wouldn't matter.
1: We could have a faculty member show up and deliver 50% of that content remotely and 50% per, uh, right there in the classroom uh, uh, synchronously, right? But that asynchronous style and modalities, there are so many modalities. And, and actually, I, Melissa Vito, she's one of our colleagues in that space, and she's at uh, in Arizona. She has really done the research there, and I'm excited to see what the modalities we go forward with. But do I see it being 100%? No. Now, there might be universities that step off and do that. I will say you might after this pandemic, there might be universities that close their doors for oh, the they- first time in history, because yeah. I, right now I don't see how some of the privates are, you know, they're trying to stay afloat with no revenue coming in, you know, for on campus and those types of services that usually supported their model, right? Their people. Yes. Um, so they're going to have to think out of the box. I really do think that. Um, but i think we're positioned nicely because what's interesting is in spite of the pandemic i feel this this particular semester alone people have chosen to stay home and we've actually our numbers went up a little bit so our enrollment numbers increased
0: that's great that's great okay. congratulations yeah thank you it's it has been as as we say this hour has gone by so quickly and hasn't it I sign off and thank you. I just want to share one comment that we got from one of our alert uh, viewers on LinkedIn just said, Kendra, it's been inspiring to see what you've been able to accomplish at UTSA. You are an incredible leader. And thank you. I could not agree more. And thank you so much for joining us today. I humbly appreciate
1: that. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation.
0: It really was, it really was. And I just have to say, I absolutely love the background decor you have going on.
1: So I, Christmas arrived early at my house <laughs> this past weekend.
0: I really feel like I need to raise the bar here. I've had my my one little tasteful screen behind me for all of the uh, interviews I do. And it's I love the idea of a little holiday decoration. It's my facade
1: behind me, but also you have to remember I have six dogs. So in front of me, you can't see their dog bowls all lined up against the wall.
0: All right. Well, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you joined us late and you are sitting there thinking, oh no, I've missed the greatest conversation with this incredible CIO, don't despair. You can watch the full episode later today on CIO.com and it will also be on YouTube. So take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is called IDG Tech Talk. You can also catch uh, my conversation with Kendra and also with the dozens of other CIOs I've talked with since late 2017 uh, as an audio podcast. wherever you get your podcast, just search for CIO Leadership Live and you will find us. And I hope you all enjoyed today's conversation with IT leader Kendra Ketchum of UT San Antonio as much as I did, and that you'll join me for our next episode of CIO Leadership Live just one week from today, Wednesday, December 9th at 12 noon Eastern. I'll be joined by Lisa Davis, who is the CIO of Blue Shield of California. Thanks so much for tuning in today. And thanks again to my colleagues at CIO.com and especially the CIO Executive Council for their ongoing sponsorship and support of CIO Leadership Live. Stay safe and well, and we'll see you here next week, I hope. Take care.
1: This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.